Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. My uh, task this morning is to finish our Advent series that we simply called um, uh, Christmas Meditations. And two weeks ago, I stood with you and shared how I'd been meditating in John's first epistle, the first chapter. And uh, it wasn't, I, I didn't have Christmas in mind. I didn't have the Advent series in mind. But I was really struck by the very first words of the epistle, which says, that which was from the beginning. And in that message, I shared with you how I was absolutely taken aback by that language. That which? Why would John say that which was from the beginning? John wrote the gospel. And in the gospel, it starts off, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And he immediately launches in the gospel into the beginning, and, and, it's, and it's a person. It's a someone. In the epistle, it starts off that which. And J.B. Phillips translates that there was something from the beginning. And, and it really gripped me. I thought, why, why would it say that which instead of he who? Why would it say something instead of someone? And we explored what that was about. Now, of course, John in his epistle does get to the fact that, there, that the something is a someone and the, that which is a he who. But it's not where he starts. He starts where nearly all worldview questions start, where nearly all human beings start when they say, what is it that was at the beginning? What started this? And that's where John starts. So that was that first message. I'm not going to go back over it. You can, you can check out the podcast if you wish. But I, I carried on in my thinking, and um, this morning I want to go back to the same passage and share with you the thoughts that developed as I meditated on it further. So let's read it. It's 1 John chapter 1, the first four verses. And it goes, That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we did behold and our hands did handle concerning the word of life. And the life was manifest and we have seen and do testify and declare to you the life, the age during, which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard declare we to you that ye also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned to you that in his gospel, John assumes Jesus's humanity. And the gospel of John is about proving that Jesus was more than human, that in fact he was divine. In the first epistle, John assumes Jesus' divinity and sets out to prove his humanity. So it's, it's reversed. And as I thought about it, I thought I could understand why Jesus would need to make a case, uh, sorry, why John would need to make a case for Jesus' divinity. But why would he need to make a case to prove Jesus' humanity? Wouldn't that be a given? Well, let me just take a moment and explain the background to John's need to prove that Jesus actually was human. And the background is the development of a movement in the early church called docetism, which comes from the Greek word dokio, which means to appear. And docetism was a doctrine that was beginning to develop that claimed that Christ's body wasn't actually physically human. 
it completely undermined the truth of the incarnation when the incarnation, of course, is about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. The claim of docetism was that he didn't, in fact, become flesh, that his body was a phantom, it was an apparition, or perhaps it was a real but celestial substance. But the essence of docetism is that Jesus wasn't human, he only appeared to be. So docetism is some like, sometimes called seemism. It seemed that he was human, but that he wasn't. And this docetism, this seemism, flowed easily out of a Greek mode of thinking which could be traced back to the ideas of a very, very famous Greek by the name of Plato. Plato was, and in fact remains, one of the most influential thinkers in the history of the Western world. And for Plato, the present world of space, time and matter was essentially a world of illusion, like the flickering shadows in a cave. And I'm sure some of you would have heard of, or perhaps even at university studied, Plato's allegory of the shadows in the cave. And I'm not going to go into that. But essentially, Plato suggested that a true and higher reality lay outside the world of space, time and matter, and was to be found in what he called eternal forms. The objects of this world, he said, were merely imitations of these eternal forms. And according to Plato, humans were made for something beyond and quite different from this physical world with its evil and its decay. And he longed and suggested that other people too should um, for a world of pure spiritual existence where we would happily be able to shed the shackles of our humanity. Now, he was particularly influential uh, in thinking of that time, and a group of people in John's day called the Gnostics enthusiastically followed Plato's lead, and so we get this docetism and semism developing. And they despised the physical material world, they rejected its reality, which ultimately led them in one of two directions. Either they became aesthetics punishing their bodies, or they felt that what happened with their bodies was irrelevant and didn't count and they became libertines. They indulged their bodies. So the Gnostics taught that the body is evil. It's a prison house to which the soul is shackled. It's, it's a tomb to which the spirit is confined. And one of their number, a man by the name of Marcus Aurelius, commented, despise the body. The whole composition of the body is under corruption. Now, it's this teaching that is beginning to infiltrate the early church and gain some traction. And it can be summed up by saying the physical world is bad, the non-material spiritual world is good. And John is writing this epistle to confront this docetic Gnostic her heresy that has, uh, is beginning to, as I say, gain some traction. And John opens the epistle by piling up words of sensory experience, emphasizing the physical reality of the story. He says, we heard him, we saw him, we beheld him, we touched him. And I think John is recalling the time when Jesus stood among them in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, and said to the disciples, look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see it is I. It is myself. Touch me. Make sure that I'm not a ghost, that I'm not a phantom. For ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. Without doubt, John is also recalling the encounter that Thomas had with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, put your hands, put your finger into my hands. Put your hand into my side. Touch me. 
Don't be faithless any longer. So John is declaring Jesus is no phantom. He's not a ghost, either before or after the resurrection. He's material, physical, a real human being. The incarnation, Jesus took on our flesh. And John says, we heard him, we saw him, we beheld him, we touched him. And I mentioned two weeks ago that when John said that, he's using legal, the legal language of a disposition of that time. And he, he's saying, I am telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I swear I was an eyewitness. Let me just divert for a moment and talk about this matter of eyewitness testimony. The gospel is not myth, it is not legend, it is not about spiritual parables. You know, sometimes you hear liberal scholars saying things like, well, the resurrection, it's obviously not a historical reality to be believed. It's a parable about how good will ultimately triumph over evil and how spring will follow winter. And I want to say no, no, and no. Now, you can choose to believe the Gospels are lies if you wish, but don't give us that nonsense about them being less, um, legends and myth. Ancient legends were not at all like the Gospel in the way that they were written. You know, in modern-day fiction, it includes all kinds of details in the story that are intended to give the story a realistic sense for modern readers. But ancient legends were never like that. Ancient legends never put into the story details that didn't develop either the plot or the character. It never occurred to them to do that. If you've ever read the Iliad or the Odyssey, they do not contain the details that the Gospels do. Homer never said things like Achilles met Hector in one-to-one -one combat about three miles outside of Troy. It, doesn't, it never says that. The Gospels, on the other hand, say things like, Jesus came walking on the water. They were about three or four miles out when suddenly they saw Jesus. This is classic eyewitness testimony. One says it was about three miles out from the shore. The other says, I thought it was about four. All right, it's about three or four miles out from the shore. Ancient legends never did that. When Jesus met the disciples after the resurrection on the lakeshore and had breakfast with them, John recalls all kinds of details that would never be included in ancient myths and legends. Jesus had a charcoal fire, and on the fire were fish, and we'd just caught a, a whole lot of fish, 153 of them, massive ones, after Jesus told us to throw. Ancient legends never, uh, they're not written like that. This is detail that belongs only to an eyewitness account. The Gospels are objective reality. They are history. By the way, if any of you want to follow that thought through, Richard Balcom has written a wonderful book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. John is saying here, I was an eyewitness, and I will have none of this nonsense about him being a phantom, about a non-physical Jesus. The incarnation is about flesh, about material matter. And that's why in the epistle he goes on to say things like this in 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit speaking through a self-proclaimed prophet. Instead, test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets and teachers have gone out into the world. By this you know and recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges and confesses the fact that Jesus Christ has actually come in the flesh as a man is from God. God is its source. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, acknowledging that he came in the flesh, but would deny any of the Son's true nature, is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now already in the world. 
When you understand the background, you get the sense of why John is saying what he's saying. He's not a phantom. He's physical. He's real. He's, he's real. The Greek-thinking Gnostics could never accept John's teaching. For them, the matter and the flesh, altogether evil, a true incarnation is impossible. A church father by the name of Augustine once commented that while there were many things in Christianity that the pagan philosophers could readily accept, one thing that they would never embrace was that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You, you know as well as I that John and the other disciples were Jewish in their worldview and in their thought patterns. They were Hebraic, they were not Greek or, or Platonic. They believed that God created the world, the physical, material world of space, time and matter, and then declared it is good. It is very good. Now you could say, oh yes Don, but that was before the fall. It's all gone really bad since then and now it's evil, dark and corrupt. And of course you would be correct. We recognise that the cosmos is badly out of joint. It is, it is fallen. And it actually reflects the people who dwell on it. It reflects the brokenness of you and I. Humanity was created in the purposes of God to be stewards of God's good creation and to exercise a tremendous degree of influence. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, we are God's partners in the work of creation. However, you know the story, through the fall we betrayed that trust. In Luke chapter 4, where the devil is tempting Jesus, one of the second temptation, the devil takes him up onto a high mountain, shows him the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time and says, all this authority is mine and all its glory. It has been delivered to me and if you'll worship me, I'll give it to you. That word delivered is a Greek word, paradidomai, and, and it means to betray. It's been betrayed into my hands, he says. It's the same word that's used in John 13, where it says that Judas, having uh, Satan putting into his heart the idea to betray Jesus, paradidomai, same Greek word. The devil says, this, this has been betrayed into my, into my hands, I'll, I'll give it to you. Adam betrayed his trusts, and now God's good world looks more like Mordor than it does the Shire. It's a reflection of the people who dwell on it. Theodore Rosauk, in his book, Where the Wasteland Ends, has an insightful comment about the earth being a reflection of those who live on it. And he says, we can now see that the fate of the soul is the fate of the social order, that if the spirit within us withers, so will all the world we build about us. Literally so. What, after all, is the ecological crisis that now captures so much belated attention, but the inevitable extroversion of a blighted psyche, like inside, like outside. In the 11th hour, the very physical environment suddenly looms up before us as an outward mirror of our inward condition. For many, the first discernible symptoms of advanced disease within. It's like, wow, powerful. The world is a reflection of the people on it. While it is true that the cosmos is badly broken out of joint and, uh, and the people on it are likewise, it is not God forsaken. All of this, of course, raises the question that in and through the incarnation, what did God intend? With him becoming flesh, what was he seeking to do? What is God going to do about the problem of the fallenness of humanity and the out-of-joint cosmos. And I think, as I thought about it, this is something that John's epistle speaks to us here in the 21st century, some important things to say to you and I as Christians in the 21st century.
because the modern day church at times and in places looks and sounds more Gnostic and more docetic than we would feel comfortable acknowledging. Platonism has infected large swathes of Christian thinking and theology. And you say, well, Don, how so? All right, you ask the average believer in the average evangelical church, why did Jesus become flesh? Why did he come and die on the cross? And the answer, as often as not, will go something like this. He came to die on the cross in my place so that I could be forgiven and so that I could go to heaven when I die and be with him forever. He died to save my soul. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's what I would have said. It's not surprising, as I say. We have been dramatically influenced by Platonism. You mention salvation to most Christians, and they assume you mean going to heaven when you die. Salvation means that we get to escape this sick, sad old world, and we go to heaven. And some of us were raised in and marinated in rapture theology, where we're going to get to flee this world at some time in the future. In the Jesus movement of the 70s, of which I was part, we used to talk about this world, and we'd say things like, well, it's all going to burn anyway. We're not, this is not our home. Think about some of the hymns that we sing and the theology that it teaches us. It's just passing through theology. This world is not my home, I'm, I'm heaven bound. Now I love the hymn, How Great Thou Art, but sometimes I wonder what it's teaching us. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy will fill my heart. What home is the hymn, uh, is the hymn writer thinking about? Well, clearly he's talking about heaven. A place of happiness, bliss, spiritual place, a non-natural reality where there are streets of gold, mansions, and apparently lots of harps. I remember a children's song that said it as clearly as any other hymn, somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place for those who trust him and obey. Can you smell the platonic sense in that? The scent in that? This isn't Bible. This is soft version of Platonism. You know, in church circles, we, we, our language betrays us. We talk about soul winning. You go to prayer meetings and they say, let's pray for souls to be saved. Listen, let me be blunt and perhaps a little bit shocking, but Jesus did not come to save people's souls. You say, what? He came to save holes, not souls. He came to save us entirely, spirit soul and body. The Bible does not teach Platonism. It does not reject the physical material creation. He does not reject flesh. He clothed himself in flesh. God originally said of this world, it is good. It is very good. And he does not reject what he's created. He redeems it. And he does it by embracing flesh himself through the incarnation. In Christianity, the material is as much the subject of redemption as the spiritual is. And Christianity does not reject the material, physical, spiritual world. It accepts the material, physical world as God created and God approved. You know, Christianity is the most materialistic of all world religions, in vivid contrast to many of the Eastern faiths, which really are Gnostic, rejecting the physical realm. Christianity takes the physical realm seriously, and, and it needs to because we're embodied creatures. We function in and through the body, or we don't function at all. We are physical beings as much as we are spiritual beings, and in biblical salvation, we must not separate those things that God has joined together. So redemption and salvation isn't about 
leaving this wretched, obnoxious, recalcitrant body of mine and the miserable, decaying planet and going off to some spiritual place far, far away. Somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place. Redemption is about liberating that which has been enslaved. It is about renewing and restoring things after having dealt decisively with the evil and sin that has defaced and distorted them. When you have a group of Christians who are marinated in this soft Platonism, this passing through theology, the earth is not my home, and ask them where the resurrection of the body fits into that scheme, they just look at you with blank stares. What about 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter? And it's like, I don't know, it's a mystery to them. And it gets pushed to the margins. When you talk to them about the new heavens and the new earth coming down, blank stares. Can I say to you, biblical salvation is not leaving the material, physical realm behind and flying off to some spiritual existence forever in heaven, far away. Salvation is not about forsaking physicality, but it is rather about embracing a new mode of physicality. We are promised a new form or a new type of bodily existence. Let me read the scriptures to you in case you're thinking I'm making all this up. Okay? Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. But there is far more to life for us. We're citizens of high heaven. We're waiting for the arrival of the Savior, the Master, Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He will make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill by which he is putting everything as it, to, everything as it should be under and around him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Yes, dear friends, we are already God's children right now, and we can't even imagine what it's going to be like later on. But we do know this, that when he comes, we will be like him, as a result of seeing him as he really is. And in case you're not convinced, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For instance, we know that when these bodies of ours are taken down like tents and folded away, they will be replaced by resurrection bodies in heaven. God made, not handmade, and we will never have to relocate our tents again. Sometimes we can hardly wait to move, so we cry out in frustration. Compared to what's coming, living conditions around here are like a stopover in an unfinished shack. You know that I'm reading the message translation, don't you? And we're tired of it, he says. We've been given a glimpse of the real thing, our true home, our resurrection bodies. The risen Lord Jesus Christ is both the model for future Christian bodily fleshly existence and also the means by which it will come about. We will be like him and have a real body like his body. And his body was physical. It could be heard. It could be seen. It could be beheld. It could be touched. His resurrection body was both continuous with his old one and in yet some ways discontinuous too. He could be recognized as the Jesus they knew. And yet, he could appear and disappear and come through locked doors. Nevertheless, his body was physical. The incarnation is not a temporary phase that Jesus adopted for a time and then he went back to heaven and returned to his pre-incarnate form. He remains a man, permanently, eternally. He was a man, he is a man, he remains flesh. 
N.T. Wright says, instead of talking vaguely about heaven and then trying to fit the language of resurrection into that, we should talk with biblical precision about the resurrection and reorganize our language about heaven around that. Wright is suggesting that resurrection takes center stage and heaven goes to the margin, not vice versa. Biblically, I think it's so clear that Jesus didn't die just to save embodied souls, but he died for soil as well. The created order will share the redemption of the children of God in the same way that it reflects our brokenness, our out-of-jointness, it will reflect our wholeness. That's why in Romans chapter 8, the J.B. Phillips version says, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. The world of creation cannot as yet see reality, not because it chooses to be blind, but because in God's purposes it has been so limited. Yet it has been given hope. And the hope is that in the end, the whole created life will be rescued from the tyranny of change and decay and have its share in that magnificent liberty which can only belong to the children of God. God is going to redeem all that that's been enslaved and defaced by sin and, and brokenness and evil. And it includes both people and creation. It says creation is on tiptoe. No wonder it groans. It's hard to stand on tiptoe for 2,000 years. Creation will ultimately be redeemed. Space, time, matter will share in God's redemptive purposes. God's unstoppable goal is nothing less than the restoration of his good creation. He doesn't plan to eradicate it, but to liberate it from the curse of sin that's defaced it. And he will redeem as far as the curse is found, as Isaac Watts' hymns says. There are good, there's good theology in hymns as well. To suggest, as we did in the Jesus people days, that sin has so corrupted creation that it's beyond redemption and can only be destroyed in favour of some other non-spatio-temporal, non-material world is tantamount to saying that evil is more important and more powerful than God's redemptive purposes and has so defaced his world he's just got to start all over again. He doesn't. He can redeem and restore. The gospel announces that what God did for Jesus at Easter, he will do not only for those who are in Christ, but for the entire cosmos. Now, some of you are probably sitting there thinking, does Don Barry not believe in heaven? Not so fast, okay? Christians from the earliest times have embraced a two-step belief about the future. First, there is death and whatever it is that lies immediately beyond. And you know, the Bible doesn't say a lot. It does say, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We know that we will be with Jesus. As Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And I don't mind if you call that paradise or you, you can call it heaven. What we do know from the scriptures is it's a temporary phase. It is not our eternal home. Some of you say, well, well, hang on, Don, what about John 14 and the mansions? I had my heart set on one of those. I'd, I'd planned out the decor and, and, and even the gardens. And, and you know that I'm talking from John 14. There are in my father's house, there are many dwelling places or mansions, you know, and, and I'm going to come and I'm going to take you there. You can check that out later. This has regularly been taken, not the least, when used in the context of bereavement to mean that dead Christians will simply go to heaven permanently. But the Greek word translated by the word dwelling places or mansions is a word mona, and mona does not refer to a resting place, uh, to an eternal place, but a resting place on a journey that has not yet been reached, like Holiday Inn. 
You go and you stay there for a little while, but you're going on somewhere else. Monai is an overnight stop on a longer journey. And the scriptures say the final, ultimate end of that journey, the second phase in the biblical teaching about the future is the resurrection of the body and a new bodily existence in a newly made, restored world. This is the new heavens, the new earth of Revelation 21 and 22. Coming down, not going up. Our goal is terrestrial. It's not, it's, it's terra firma. It's not extraterrestrial. Not floating on clouds somewhere in outer space. We are made from earth and ultimately for earth. And again, if you're thinking, Don, I, you know, this is a, a bit news to me. Are, are you the only person who thinks this? And I want to say no. But we've been marinated in the soft Platonism of we die, we get to go to heaven. Somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place. Peter Marshall said, our destiny is an earthly one. A, a new earth and earth redeemed and transformed and earth reunited with heaven, but an earth nonetheless. Randy Alcorn in his book entitled Heaven says, the present heaven is a temporary lodging, a waiting place until the return of Christ and our bodily resurrection. The eternal heaven and the new earth is our true home, the place where we will live forever with our Lord and with each other. The great redemptive purposes and promises of God will find their ultimate fulfillment on the new earth and not in the immediate heaven. And the great Welsh preacher, not from the New South Wales, but from the Old South Wales, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, everything will be glorified, even nature itself. And that seems to me to be the biblical teaching about the eternal state. That what, that what we call heaven is life in this perfect world as God intended humanity to live it. When he put Adam in paradise at the beginning, Adam fell and all with him. But men and women are meant to live in the body and will live in a glorified body, in a glorified world, and God will be with them. This redeemed, glorified, material, physical world is the ultimate answer to Jesus' prayer when he said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The trajectory of redemption has always been from heaven down. The Bible is not about the ascent of man, but the descent of God. It is always God coming to dwell with us, not about us fleeing this world to go and be with him. And 1 John is about the redemption of and not the rejection of the flesh, the material and physical world. We saw him. We beheld him. We, we touched him. We heard him. John Pyle's physical experience one on top of another to let us know that docetism, that semism, that platonism is not the teaching of the scripture. Jesus embraced the material, physical flesh in the incarnation, not so that he could ultimately reject it and, and, and cause us to float off somewhere else, but that he could redeem it from the sin that is defaced and distorted it. Now some of you, and I'm closing here so the musicians might like to come, some of you, I suspect, are thinking, how on earth, no pun intended, but how on earth, Don, did you just get from we heard him, we saw him, we beheld him, and we touched him, to Revelation 21 and 22 about a new heaven and a new earth? Did I miss something? Probably when you were checking Facebook. 
If you're not sure what I just said, you can go back over the podcast or you can perhaps ask your neighbour who wasn't on Facebook and say, can you help me with the connection? It's about physical. Jesus came to restore, to redeem, to renew. And it's all about incarnation, the arrival, the advent, and we thank God for it. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.